And we'll just read verses 4 through 7. The psalmist writes, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Now the psalmist looks in these verses at several truths. In verse 4, he tells us that God sees all men. In verse 5, he tells us that he hates the wicked. And this is one of the reasons we ought to be very, very careful when we tell someone that God loves them, because the Scripture is quite clear that God hates all who practice iniquity, and he hates the wicked. In verse 6, he tells us the portion of the wicked, that he will rain coals and fire and brimstone upon them, and that shall be their portion. But then he comes to verse 7 and he says this, The Lord is righteous, and not only is He righteous, but He loves righteousness. Now one of the things that the Puritans were wont to do in their sermons is to think about what it was the Scripture was saying and take it as far as they could go in its rational uh, arena and plumb the depths of the truths of the text. Someone was saying this morning, how could anybody preach for 33 years on the book of Hebrews? Well, you know, after 33 years, there wasn't anything about Hebrews that hadn't been said. In fact, one of the common uh, anecdotes that was uh, typical during the Puritan days, why do the Puritan preachers preach so long? And the answer was, they want to be there when the congregation wakes up again. Well, when you go for two hours, that's what's going to happen. But you know, even Jesus had somebody fall asleep on Him and fall out of the window and die. And uh, I guess if there's two extremes, it would be today where we have sermonettes for Christianettes. I have a friend who is filling the pulpit in Pittsburgh in a PCUSA church. He's a very, very conservative, solid, reformed preacher, and he's taking this on as an evangelistic endeavor. And the comments he got last week were, we're not used to these kinds of sermons. And he said, what kinds of sermons is that? From the Bible. He said, we're used to devotionals and inspirational messages. He says, and you use books in the Bible, we couldn't even find the page number. Will you give us the page number? Well, it's no wonder a church is in the situation that church is in when they're so abysmally ignorant of Scripture. uh, I remember being asked one time to preach. I said, how long do I have? And they said, 20 minutes. I I turned it down. I said, I don't have any introductions that short. And so when we come to the Scripture and we see a statement like this, the Lord is righteous and He loves righteousness, 
then we need to think with this text. If the Lord loves righteousness, He must love Himself. And He must love Himself above all else because there is nothing that is more righteous than God. I have a study that I do. It's a, it could never really be a weekend conference because it has 12 messages. But it's on the character of God and the one I think that ties them all together is that God is infinite. Whatever God is, He is infinitely so. And so if God is righteous, He is infinitely righteous, which is hard for us to comprehend. We hope to do one or two good deeds a day. You think of that. uh, You may have Scripture verses that uh, have lodged with you and have taken up a place in your mind. And you say, I wish I understood that text better. Or I wish I understood the fullness of that text. For me, it's when Jesus said this, I always do the things that are pleasing to God. What an amazing statement. You know, pastors know this, that we're told in counseling to not let people, when they come in for marital counseling, use always or never statements because they are never true. You never helped me around the house. I helped you in 1984. Don't tell me I never helped you around now. All you have to do is find one example, and it's no longer true. But here's Jesus saying, I always do the things that are pleasing to God. In other words, I've never done anything that was not pleasing to God. In other words, He was infinitely obedient. God is infinitely righteous. And therefore, he must love himself more than anything else. So when we talk about the love of God, and when we say God is love, we've got to start with interpreting this not from a human sentimental or a maudlin or a syrupy kind of love, but a divine love for that which is most lovely, which would be God. Song of Solomon, it tells us that he is altogether lovely. And Samuel Rutherford, in preaching on that verse, said, if Christ is altogether lovely, then everything else is altogether loathsome. You see, we don't think like that. Because we don't meditate, for one thing. I'm not talking about the kind of 1960s things where we listened to the Moody Blues and contemplated our navels. And that's when we could still find them. I'm talking about thinking about God. So when we say God is love, that must be understood in context. We ought to be very careful, for example, if we have a bumper sticker that says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We have to tell the whole truth, which would take up several bumper stickers. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life as long as you're in Christ, but if you're outside of Christ, He hates you. And hell is not a wonderful plan. I don't know if we could sell any of them. But because God loves Himself, He must of necessity hate anything that is not like Himself. In other words, if God didn't hate the wicked, He would not be loving Himself. Because the wicked are contrary to God's righteousness and holiness. By their very nature, they are enemies of God. And if God did not 
hate that which is contrary to himself and his own nature, he couldn't be loving himself at the same time. That's why someone asked me uh, last week, I spoke at a uh, CMA church in Morgantown, West Virginia, and uh, a man came up to me and he said, uh, I rightly assess, I think, that you're a Calvinist. And I said, well, there's no slipping anything by you, is there? And, <clears throat> and he says, how could a God of love send anyone to hell? And I said, how could a God of justice do anything but? And he says, but if He's a God of love, I said, but He loves Himself most. God is showing His love for Himself by punishing His enemies and yours in hell for their wickedness. God shows His love for Himself at the cross by punishing His Son who is willing to take on your wickedness. God shows His hatred for sin and His love for Himself most at the cross in the same act. So God, because He is perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, infinitely holy, and let me just take another sidetrack here. Try to fathom this when the Scripture says about Christ that in Him all the fullness of deity dwells. How much fullness is in an infinite deity? I mean, that's the kind of thing that's mind-boggling. And the Scripture says it's all in Christ. Which is why Colossians 3 can tell us that Christ is all in all. And that's why the Puritans would look at that verse and say, and if Christ is all in all, then everything else is nothing at all. Yeah, I knew that. I knew that. But we haven't thought about it. So God, being such as He is, cannot accept and He cannot love anything that is not like Himself. We're trying to get the pops out of this mic, but it's not doing very well on its own here. It's about to choke me if I do it any other way. So I'm sorry for the booms. That's not my stomach going off after breakfast. That's this microphone. God can't accept anything that's not like Himself. And He can't love anything that's not like Himself. That's why the Scripture tells us that we are accepted in the Beloved. Here's another thing we ought never to tell someone. God accepts you just the way you are. That is patently false. God accepts you just the way Christ is. Now, are we saying that you have to get good enough for God to love you. No, we're not saying that. That's Romanism. What we are saying is, though, that the way you are is the reason God hates you if you're outside of Christ. It doesn't commend you to Christ. It alienates you from Christ. He can only love Himself and anything that is like Himself, and that is the sinner's dilemma. We are not righteous. Old Testament defines righteousness as this, perfect obedience to God's law. And that's why every one of us is condemned. And according to Romans 10, if you'll turn there for just a moment, and we will be doing a, a little bit of a sword drill for any of you converted Baptists. 
In Romans 10, verses 1 to 3, Paul says this, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Those are the only two kinds of righteousness there are. There is God's righteousness and there is self-righteousness. And that is the problem that we have. If we are outside of Christ, we can only have a self-righteousness. And that is a terrible, damnable place to be in. Because Paul speaks in Romans 3 about a certain kind of righteousness that we need. In verse 21, "...but the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe." The righteousness of God that comes through faith. That's why those who are, those who do not have faith find it impossible to please God. Without faith, Hebrews tells us, it is impossible to please God. Why? Because without faith you cannot have the righteousness of God. All you can have is self-righteousness. Some years ago in Pittsburgh, a United Airlines Flight 427 from Chicago to Pittsburgh went down about seven miles from the Pittsburgh airport, killing everyone on board. And a man who lived up the street from me at the time was part of the cleanup crew, and I asked him, what do you remember? He says, well, he says, I'll never be the same. I says, I have nightmares every night. And I said, does one thing stick out? And he said, yes, I found a hand by a bush with the fingers crossed. But you see, without faith that gives us the righteousness of God, that's all you've got. You go to stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat with your fingers crossed. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. And you're in the Wizard of Oz land hoping for things that won't happen. Because God's love for Himself is such that He cannot accept anything that is not like Himself. That's why it's impossible for God to love everybody. And it's amazing that God should love anybody, right? Now here's where we start to hear some good news. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, we are told that Christ became to us Righteousness. He became to us righteousness. Now with all of that in mind, I want us to dissect one verse for a while. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. One of the things I think that we do to our own detriment is we go through the Scriptures too fast. And we miss so much that God has for us there because we're in such a hurry. And I don't know what our hurry is. 
That's why it doesn't bother me that a man preached for 33 years in the book of Hebrews because as soon as he's done, he's just going to start another book. What's the hurry? There were no soccer games to get to, no kickoffs to be home for, no barbecues or any such thing as that. They just knew that once this book was done, he'd start another one, and who knew how long that would go? The first church I was at, I only preached, I've only been pastor of one church, and I only preached through one book, and that was Ephesians. And it took me four weeks to get through verse one, and I asked one of my elders, uh, just because I wanted to mess with him, I said, how long do you think this is going to go? He said, well, I was thinking six weeks for the whole book, but at the rate you're going, it'll take nine. And I preached 73 weeks in the book of Ephesians, and when I was done, I felt like I hadn't done the book any service at all. Well, the same thing with so much of Scripture. Here we see Paul saying this, For he, who is the he? He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All you have to do to interpret the he of verse 21 is look at the last word of verse 20. For he, God made Him, who is the Him? Christ. To be sin. Who made Christ to be sin? God did. God made Christ who knew no sin. Never sinned. Didn't know what sin was. One of the problems we have is we're so used to sinning, it doesn't bother us that much. In fact, we think it's a particularly holy day if we just sin less than we did the day before. But what would it be like if you'd never sinned? And then all of a sudden, you didn't sin once, but you were actually made to epitomize sin. God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin. Or literally, He knew no sin. He made Him sin. But we have to be very, very careful that we don't step into a blasphemous and damnable heresy that the um, health, wealth, and prosperity guys and the name it and claim it's due, they actually say that Jesus sinned. Well, if He sinned, He can't be a Savior. He didn't make him sin, and he didn't become a sinner. That's what they say. Jesus became a sinner on the cross. That's absolute heresy, and you can't be a Christian and believe that or teach it. God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, literally, who pair, not so much for us as on our behalf. One thing we have to be careful of and the the Puritans were so precise, is that we use biblical language to express biblical ideas. Everything Christ did, He did for God. On our behalf. Christ died for God. Because God asked Him to. That's the covenant of redemption. He did it on our behalf because we couldn't. When people say, why did Jesus have to die for sin? Or when somebody says, you ought to come to Jesus or you'll die for your sin. You can't die for your sin. If you're unconverted, you don't even have a life to give for sin. 
You're dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people can't die. Only Jesus, who had life to give, could offer life for sin. So God made Christ, who knew no sin, sin on our behalf. Here's a purpose clause. That we might become, look at this phrase, the righteousness of God, where? In Him. What will God accept? His own righteousness. What will God love? His own righteousness. What do we become in Christ? You say it. I already know it. The righteousness of God. And how do we become that in Him? Or as Paul said earlier in Romans, the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. God has made us in Christ, through the death of Christ, the righteousness of God. He didn't just make us righteous. That wouldn't have been enough. Because as the Old Testament tells us, our righteousness is what? Filthy. It's filthy. Now just think with me for a moment. If our righteousness is filthy, what must our sin be? If our righteousness is filthy, what must our sin be? That is why you really get the essence of the Gospel all the way back in Genesis. Where the book of Genesis tells us this, Adam and Eve sinned. The first result of that is they knew they were naked. And then what did they do? They tried to cover their nakedness by sewing fig leaves together. Now, we tend to think that they're on a camping expedition and they've packed up the van and they have everything necessary for a week-long camping trip in the mountains. But you've got to remember, these are the first people and they don't have anything of anything. And so as soon as they sin, they know they're naked and they try to sew fig leaves together. What were they going to use for a needle? What were they going to use for thread? And Adam, who has now sinned, is a typical man. So he says to his wife, let's sew fig leaves together. Give me a needle. And Eve says, what's a needle? Of course, you could say that to a modern woman and she asks the same question. What's a needle? And he says, never mind, we don't need no stinking needle. Give me a twig. But they're still in paradise and no twigs have fallen off the branches yet. So they have to try to tear a green branch off of a tree and then stick it through a green leaf. But what are they going to tie the leaves together with? Can you see the folly of this? And here comes the Gospel. It says, God made them clothes. But before He could do that, one of the animals had to die and sacrifice his skin so that Adam and Eve as sinners 
could have clothes to wear. That's why the clothing motif is such an important one in Scripture when we talk about the Gospel. That we are clothed in the royal robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why Augustus Toplady wrote, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And the reason we bring nothing in our hands is because we have nothing to offer God. As the contemporary of Luther, Melanchthon, said, the only thing you bring to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. You have nothing that God wants. You have nothing that He needs. You have nothing that He can use. So much so that when He said to the disciples, when you have done everything I've ever commanded you to do, you can say, we are now useless. What an interesting statement. Just try to imagine yourself in that position. That you could possibly, theoretically, conceivably, come to Jesus Christ and say like the rich young ruler did, everything you have ever commanded of me I have done. I have never sinned in word, thought, or deed. I've never spoken an unkind word to my neighbor. I've never been angry at anyone without cause. From the moment of my conception till the moment of my leaving this earth, I have been perfect in every motive, in every action, in every thought. And Jesus Christ will say, congratulations, you have reached the lofty status of being absolutely useless to me. That's what the word unprofitable means. You're useless. Because God doesn't need us. We certainly need Him. But He doesn't need us. We have nothing to offer Him. And that's why if our righteousness is as filthy rags, if we try to offer Christ anything of our own righteousness, we're covering filth with more filth. And there is nothing honorable in that. So we are only accepted in the Beloved. If you will, it's like this movie Troy that just came out. It's like the Trojan horse. You only get into the city if you're inside that which is accepted in the city. We need a new heart. We need to be clean. And we also need a new name if God is ever going to love us. And that is why Jeremiah 23 tells us this, that we must take this name to be our name the Lord, our righteousness. That is the last name of every Christian who would stand before God. On the plane coming out here, they showed the movie Miracle about the 1980 ice hockey team. And it's the best sports movie I've ever seen, the best depiction of an athletic coach I've ever seen. And Kurt Russell really nailed the mentality of a coach, and he even got that Minnesota accent down that Herb Brooks had. And there's a scene. He's trying to bring a bunch of college all-stars together to play as a team. But whenever he asks them, who are you and who did you play for, they always give their own name and their college. Michael Ruzioni, Boston College. Oh. And then that happens again. What's your name? Pat Dobson, University of Minnesota. 
Well, after one particular point in the movie, they, they tied a game that they should have won easily, and so he decided, he said, if you didn't want to play during the game, you can work out afterwards. So he says, get on the line. And there's a thing that coaches do that they call gassers, which is you start from this point and you go to this point, and then you go back, and then you go to a further point, and you go back, and you go to a further point, and you go back, and you go to a further point, and it should be called upchuckers because that's what's it intended to do. It's intended to get guys to blow their lunch. It's a kind of a punishment. And so as Hollywood plays it out here, he has them go up and back and up. And they've already played a 60-minute game, so they're a little tired already. And and they keep going, and then pretty soon one guy falls to his knee. He says, get up, again. And the assistant coach is looking at him, and he says, are you sure you are? I said, again. And one guy just drops down. He can't get up anymore. And the doctor comes over to the trainer and he says, these kids are going to get hurt. You can't do this to them. Again! Back and forth. Pretty soon they're all on their knees. And he walks over to them and he looks at this one kid and he says, what's your name? Who do you play for? The kid says, Michael Guzzioni. I play for the United States of America. And he says, good night, gentlemen. And that's when they came together. But you see, this is what happens to us as believers. As long as we try to stand before God on our own, we're never part of His family. But to be part of His family, we all have to have the same last name. And in Jeremiah 23, it says, this is the name by which we will be called the Lord our righteousness. So when we stand before Jesus Christ, He says, who are you? The only answer is this. My name is Don, the Lord, my righteousness. And that's why we're admitted. And I'll tell you this, in God's family, there are no hyphenated last names. There is one name only, the Lord, our righteousness. So we are wedded to Christ. We take His name to be our name. We take His righteousness to be our righteousness. We offer the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ back to God who will only accept His own righteousness and then He accepts us and He rewards us as if we had actually done something. And once that happens, there is no divorce. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8 and see how Paul talks about this in Romans 8, verses 28 to 38. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, literally foreloved, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. Do you notice that all of those are in the past tense? Though in our experience, some of them haven't even happened yet. That's because in God's mind, it's already done. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? I want to pause just a moment and talk about that business of God not sparing His own Son. Isaiah tells us that it pleased God to crush Christ and put Him to grief. Interesting that the Holy Spirit would use that word because the word literally means to take delight in. Now you know it's not a morbid delight at seeing somebody suffer. But it pleased God to crush His own Son, one, simply because of His love for Himself and His own holiness. Now, a few months ago, the evangelical world and some of the non-evangelical world got very, very excited and emotional about this movie that Mel Gibson did, The Passion. I don't know if any of you used your Christian liberty to go see it or not. But when I was watching Entertainment Tonight and people were coming out of the theater... And a lot of wet, weepy eyes. I can't believe he did that for me. What Mel Gibson showed is not what he did for you. That was what wicked, hateful men did to a righteous man. You didn't see anything of what Christ suffered on your behalf. First of all, because you would not have gone through a beating like that because you would never be righteous enough to warrant one. When I was a kid, my dad was a cop. And he was a German cop. And he was a very strong patriarchal German cop. That's strike three against kids. And I can remember on numerous occasions getting a spanking from my mom and then hearing these words right out of the pit of hell, wait, till your father gets his hands on you. And I wish I'd have been a Calvinist then because I could have appealed to there is no double payment for sin. I don't know that it would have worked. But you know, while Jesus was going through the undeniable pain on a human level of the torture that the Romans put Him through, you know, everybody said it makes the Jews look bad. I thought it made the Italians look worse. All the while, he knows that this is child's play compared to what's going to happen to him when God gets his hand on him. That's what he suffered for you. It's what God did to him on the cross that he did for you. And one thing is, no movie could ever depict that. In fact, if you want to look at it this way, Jesus actually suffered more on the cross for you than you would if you went to hell and stayed there for all of eternity. Because after a finite time of suffering at the hands of an infinitely angry God, Jesus heard these words, It is finished. And it wasn't because God took pity on Him. It's because He had satisfied the justice and holiness of God. 
But the sinner who goes to hell and suffers for all of eternity will never hear it is finished because all the suffering of eternity can never make up to God for the dishonor the sinner does to him. But Christ could because he had merit. A friend of mine, who I no longer can count as a Christian brother, wrote this in his publication, what Jesus did on the cross merited nothing. You can't believe that and be a Christian. If it didn't merit anything, you and I are still in our sins. So who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now before anybody gets to answer, he starts going through a list. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution? What happens when Christians go through tribulation and go through persecution? The church grows. The best thing that could happen to the Christian church in America is it gets persecuted. The reason we're not growing is because we're absolutely irrelevant. And I don't mean by that we need drama and dance and better youth groups. I mean by that that because we're not persecuted, nobody can tell there's anything different about us. Over in China and the Oriental countries where the church is being persecuted, it's growing leaps and bounds. Hundreds and thousands coming to Christ because the church is being persecuted. So not only can that not separate us from Christ, it draws us to Christ. Shall nakedness or peril or sword? Okay, they kill us. What does that do? Sends us to heaven. That's a bad thing? I fly probably three weeks out of every month. People say, aren't you afraid to fly? I says, no, if you'll point out the plane with a terrorist on it, that's the one I'll get on. What's the worst that can happen? It goes down and I'm in heaven tonight. That's the next thing to look forward to. As it is written, for your sake we're killed all the day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors. We are never victims through Him who loved us. I am persuaded. You say, well, yeah. That's just Paul. It is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Scripture, the Spirit writing infallibly inspired Scripture. I am persuaded. Here's what can't separate us. Not death, not life, not angels, not principalities, not powers, not things present, excuse me, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. Pretty all-encompassing, isn't it? Nothing that's present now. Nothing that may come in the future. None of these intangibles. And no other created thing. See, now all being falls into one of two categories. Either eternally existent being, which is God alone, or created beings, which is everything else. So the answer to the question is, the only thing that could separate you from God would be God since no created thing could do it. And God has said, I will never leave you for forsake you. This is a done deal. And then you have some insipid Arminian who says, well, I can jump. 
listen, are you a created thing? Yes. Then you can't do it. Try to get the picture. All right? This is the hand of God. I'm sure it's a much nicer hand than this. And here's the free willer in the hand of God, prying God's fingers open to get out. Please, use your brain for something more than a hat rack. Shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's an inseparable love. Why? Because it is God's love, which means it is an infinite love. Now, to what extent? All of that has been leading up to this moment. To what extent? Go back to John 17. All of that was simply laying a foundation for these two verses. We'll actually begin at verse 20. Jesus says, I do not pray for the... And you have to listen because these words are in red letters, so they're more infallible than the rest. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word, that they all may be one as You, Father, are in Me, and I in You, that they may be one in Us, that the world may believe that You sent Me. Now everyone says that this is a prayer for unity. Yes, but it's the unity of the Trinity, and they agree on everything. Unity is not compromise. And do you notice that whenever there is compromise, it is always the high end coming down to meet the low end. It is never the low end coming up to meet the high standard. But Proverbs tells us that we are to buy the truth and we are not to sell it. It is better to get along with God and nobody else. Now, not because you're a contrary individual. We have enough of that already. But if you stand for the truth, now watch verse 22. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. How glorious is it to be a Christian? You have the same glory, not the Shekinah glory that belongs to God alone, but the same glory that God gave to Jesus Christ, Christ has given to you that they may be one just as we are one. We are all united in being glorious as Christ is. Now watch verse 23. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me. Here we go. And have loved them as you have loved me. How much does God love His children? As much as He loves Christ? How much does God love Christ? As much as He loves Himself? Why? Because Christ is the righteousness of God. Christ is God. God loves Himself with a perfectly infinite love. And all who are in Christ and have been made the righteousness of God in Him are loved by God with the same love with which He loves Himself. Not bad being a Christian, is it? And don't ever let me hear that anyone here today ever again uses this phrase, I don't feel worth much. I don't have much self-esteem. 
Shame on you. Because you have infinite God esteem. You have no right to love yourself any less than God Himself loves you. You have no right to think any less of yourself than God thinks of you. Is He not the judge who has the right to judge? And He judges with impartiality. He says, when you judge, judge with righteous judgments. Only God can judge with righteous judgments. And He has judged you to be His children, accepted in the Beloved, because He has made you the righteousness of God, which God must love the equivalent of His own. And the Gospel then is God gives us exactly what we need to stand in His favorable presence. And then He rewards us for having it. And you have to ask yourself, how could anybody reject this? And you also say, how shall they escape if they neglect a salvation like this? May that not be true of any of us, shall we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank You for a plan of salvation that we can understand that makes angels scratch their heads. And may our first thought be not that we are worthy of it, but that we are totally unworthy, but are willing to revel in it. May we be eternally grateful for an infinite, eternal love that sought us out and gave us exactly what we need to be loved by God in a way like this. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.